So uh, I just want to start by saying, coming into here, uh, my friends saw my picture on LinkedIn, and they said, well, this doesn't look like you. And I said, is it because I lost so much weight? And they said, no, you're older now. So I need to get some new photos taken. So I'm going to start with a bit of a tongue-in-cheek presentation, and then we'll move into kind of the main show. But I was uh, inspired by Marilyn's kind of theme for this whole thing, gaming and retro games. And um, it's not only retro games that were better, but retro leadership. So we're going to take a walk down memory lane. So forget about all this modern leadership mumbo-jumbo. Leaders way back then did it better. They got things done. Um, and ever since the so-called professors and experts got on board, it's been downhill ever since. So we're going to forget about all this stuff. Okay? Um, so let's forget about all this modern learning on leadership. Today I'm going to dispel four myths of, um, that have crept into modern leadership and try to take us back to the good old days. Myth number one, trust your executive team. Trust your executive team. Some people say that a high level of trust is important. That's nonsense. Don't trust anyone on your team. <laughs> trust isn't given, it's earned. And they better earn your trust. And I know they're never going to earn your trust because you guys are smarter than that. Stay laser focused on every mistake they make. Um, and make sure that you make it clear to them that you see what's going on around here. And if they keep asking for your approval on things, can they really be trusted? I don't think so. Right, so that's the first myth. Second myth is involve your executive team in decision making. That doesn't make any sense and you already know that. You already know the answer. Why do you really need to ask anyone, right? And how dare they question your decisions? You have a high office floor. You can see further than everybody else. So you know better. So if anybody dares to speak up and offer an opinion, make sure you tell them you've thought about it before and you already know it's the wrong idea and tell them in great detail why it's the wrong idea, so they never say it again. Myth number three, nurture dialogue between your executives. You're leading an executive team, and really dialogue is just another word for conflict. And we don't need more conflict around the workplace. If people are talking, they're not doing. And we want them to be doing things, not talking, right? If, people, if there's conflict, just tell them to end it now. Let it simmer below the surface. And when all the simmering boils to a point where no work is getting done, just do an organizational restructuring, right? It's like hitting a reset button. Marilyn said in her video online, there's no reset button. There is a reset button, it's called restructuring. And Jean can help you with that. Where's Jean? He's, he's left the room? Okay. I need to talk to him about a commission if you guys do a restructuring. The low productivity you're going to get for the next three years after restructuring is a very small price to pay. And last, last myth I'm going to talk about today is create psychological safety. You know, if you make it to the C-suite, you're a tough person. You don't need psychological safety. You've already made it this far. And this is a work environment. Do we really need people talking about their feelings? That doesn't make any sense. And really, how comfortable do you want people to be bringing you half-baked ideas? You want fully developed presentations, right? You'll accept no less. So... Obviously, this was a bit uh, tongue-in-cheek and hopefully a little bit humorous, but the truth is we catch a lot of people thinking this way, and if we're honest with ourselves, we can catch ourselves thinking this way sometimes as well. It's human nature, and I think our ability to accept that sometimes we act this way is important for us to take the steps to be able to move forward. So why is it especially hard for, for us to manage the executive team? 
We all have experience managing teams of different sizes, different shapes, but when you get to the top level, it becomes really especially hard. And executive teams really are like a perfect storm. And I go, you know, as much as I can in 15 minutes, I go into a little bit more detail on that. But these are people who made it to the top of the organization. So by nature, they're highly competitive people, right? They've been able to kind of elbow their way all the way to the top of the organization. So they have a competitive spirit in them. And because each person is responsible for a different function in the organization, they think differently. It's not just that they have different skills. It's the way they see the world, the way they think about the world, has taken them on a different path in life. So they fundamentally see the world in different ways. And now they have to work together to deliver a common goal, right? Which they might not be used to. They're used to competing with people. Performance reviews are all about who are the winners and who are the losers. And now they need to work together. And the environment in which they find themselves is constantly changing. So leading this kind of group of people is really not a simple task. And a lot of the skills that got you to this point are not going to be the same types of skills that are going to help you in leading an executive team. And just like each of them see the world differently, leaders also see the world differently. And this kind of gets us stuck in certain patterns of behavior. And I'll talk a little bit more about that and about how to try to overcome some of these patterns. So let me try to revisit the myths, but hopefully with... Um, a more positive light. And one thing I'll say is this is the soft stuff of leadership. So we talked about, we, you know, we listened to a great presentation by Jean earlier. Uh, and I was amazed at how much of what he talked about are things that uh, I think about. But, you know, this is more the softer stuff of, uh, of leadership. Because strategy, as Marilyn said earlier, is there, there's a method to strategy, but there isn't always a clear method to people. And leadership, as John mentioned earlier, is all about your ability to get results through people. So let's go through uh, those myths again and kind of repeat them, but maybe with a different uh, spin. The first one is trust your people to do the right thing. And this sounds great on paper, but we, we don't find ourselves doing this very often, right? It's very difficult to let go. Um, we got this far in life because we were very detail-oriented. We were very hands-on. We always wanted to get things done. And suddenly we are being asked to let go. The truth is trust is not earned. Uh, trust is given. Uh, and then they earn it. If you don't give the trust, they never live up to that expectation. So you've got to see the person they want them to become. You want them to become before they become that person. It's very difficult to put somebody at a disadvantage and then ask them to work their way up, especially if you're their leader and they look up to you. And the reason we do this, uh, and maybe I can, for each of those myths, I can try very quickly to shed some light on why we catch ourselves in this kind of behavior, is because we are not leading them. In a way, in a very strange, paradoxical way, we are subconsciously leading ourselves we're trying to convince ourselves that we're worthy of this role, that we're going to be successful or we're competing. We're still responding to that inner voice that developed in our childhood, the way we're trying to prove something to someone. Um, and trusting others is about coming back to the here and now, being focused, being in front of people, noticing them, realizing that they need you more than uh, you need you. They need you to see them as successful, they need you to see them as being able to solve the tough decisions, uh, the tough problems that they face. So 
the trick to trusting people is to refocus on the here and now, to recognize that leadership is about being there for them. Um, the second myth is about encouraging dialogue and disagreement. This is really important, precisely for the reason that we talked about earlier, that each person sees reality differently. This suggests that uh, we actually see a distorted version of reality, and that's the truth. None of us actually see what's going on in the real world. We see the world filtered through our beliefs, through our mental frameworks, through our past experiences, and so each one of us sees a different version of reality. Um, we don't do it naturally. We don't encourage uh, disagreement because it's messy, it's chaotic, it feels like it's slowing us down. And, but the truth is that the right path forward is actually somewhere in between all of our different opinions. Obviously, you want to talk to people who have a right to have an opinion, but hopefully, if people are part of your executive team, then they should have the right to have an opinion. Um, as leaders, we all have different archetypes. This is... Um, this is just a quick slide. There are many different ways to slice the pie, and everybody will tell you about all the different types of leadership archetypes. This is one uh, framework that I use, but essentially we have different ways of leading, different ways of seeing the world. Some of us are detail-oriented, some of us are more visionary, some of us are more uh, part, you know, relationship-oriented. All of these views are valid, and the truth is somewhere in between. So each one of us here will have one of those archetypes. It's enough to know that your view of the world, while it's valid for you, may not be valid for every decision that you need to make. And this archetype creates a form of lens. And I've, I've created, this is an example I like to use a lot uh, when I'm working with clients, that if you imagine that each of us has a different color, your color, the way you view the world, colors the world. So your vision of the world, if you overlay it over what's happening out there, if your color is red, it looks like everything is a different shade of red, right? So it's understanding that your view of the world is distorted and understanding that you need other people to tell you what they see so that you can kind of start to get a sense of what, what's actually happening. So what that means is that the way we behave, each one of us thinks that we're completely rational people, right? We, th we like to think that we have a very very objective view of the world. We make very rational decisions, but we're very clear about why everybody else is irrational, right? We, we can see clearly why everybody else is wrong. Uh, but the truth is that we're all wrong to some extent, so it's about calibrating. Um, I wanted to share a quick anecdote and uh, to all the women in the room, please don't go home and tell this to your husbands. But one thing that I do consciously now, I, I've realized, is whenever I need to make a big decision, I ask my wife. And the reason I ask my wife is because in many ways, she's my opposite. In some ways we're similar, but in many ways it's true that opposites attract. And what that gives me is a, is a calibration point. So if I think I'm here and she's all the way over there in her thinking, I know the truth is somewhere in between. And it's more important to kind of ask her, well, why? Why are you saying this? What's the thinking behind it? What is it that I'm not seeing? Um, when I was speaking to Marilyn before this conference, she said something that I wanted to share as well. She said, whenever somebody comes to me with a crazy idea that I think is completely wrong, I say yes. Because it's just one of those triggers that, uh, that there's something in your blind spot. So I would say, um, I would say one thing I, wanna, I want you to take away from this myth or from this idea is everything that somebody does has a rationale that makes sense to them. 
So if somebody says something that doesn't make sense to you, that's usually an indication that there's something that you're not seeing. Ask them, why are you saying this that completely, saying this thing that completely makes no sense to me? Explain to me your thinking. What, and sometimes if you don't want to ask them, you can just ask yourself, what must they believe for this to be true? And maybe that uncovers some clues that you missed out on in your thinking. Um, the third one I'll talk about is creating psychological safety, and this will be the last one, and then I'll wrap up. But psychological safety is really the secret sauce for any successful organization. Unless you're in the military or unless you're running a factory, you need psycho some level of psychological safety in your organization. We don't do it. It doesn't come natural to us because we like to fix problems, right? We have a keen eye on what's going wrong, and then we want to fix it. Uh, but fixing problems is a left-brain solution to a right-brain problem, right? So you're not there. As John mentioned earlier, and that was a great comment, you're not there to fix the problems. You're there to get your team to fix the problem. So if you're the leader of the organization, your job is to build a great executive team. Fixing things, if you have to jump in to fix things, you're taking power away from your team. It disempowers them. Um, the message you're sending is they're not good enough to get the job done. Right? So your job is not to do things, it's to get them, as I said, to do things. I see a lot of CEOs who are constantly fixing problems and then wondering, <laughs> you know, why don't, don't people step up? Why don't people do things? Well, it's because you're fixing things and because you think your solution is better than theirs. So the takeaway from this whole uh, conversation is be a coach. You know, set collective goals for your team and have shared accountability for those goals. And then drive the message. This is where really psychological safety comes in. We sink and swim together. Let's work together. Encourage open dialogue. Get people to talk. And if people disagree, get them to explain why they disagree. If people share problems, help them solve the problems. I, I, I used to uh, be responsible for delivery at the Prime Minister's office in the UAE government. And what that means is I'd work with many different organizations on the different ministries on their top priority programs. So these are things that were really in the spotlight and the, the ministers would feel like they were in the spotlight. So this created uh, a lot of inertia. People didn't move because they felt any mistake that they did was going to be exposed everywhere. And the reports on their progress would always come back green. We're doing great. Everything's fine. Hmm. Everything was not fine. So the message that I went to them was, if you surface problems we allocate resources and support to you. You get more support than people who are green. And then suddenly everything became red and not everything was red. But it's, that's the kind of message that you want to drive, that actually by surfacing problems, you get more support, not less. You don't get punished for it. And then when you think about um, having a collective goal and you think about surfacing uh, issues and having open dialogue, then you can start thinking about, okay, what kind of culture do I want to create? And what kind of behavior do I want to have as a leader in order to create that culture? So the challenge is that leading your team for results requires not just that you do things differently, but that you become a different person. And this is really the, the catch. That everything, and this is the hardest part about leadership, that everything that got you to where you are today is not the kind of behavior that will take you to the next level. And the problem with that is you're trying to fix something that isn't a problem. All, all of your life's experience has told you that this behavior leads to success. 
And now here I am telling you, it's not going to continue leading to success. You're going to have to change something that actually works. You're fixing something that on the surface appears not to be broken. So all the things that I've talked about so far are things that leaders need to do differently. We all know what to do. We don't always do them. And when we do them, frankly, they often feel wrong. It feels like the wrong behavior. We all know the anecdote of the leader who attends the week-long executive retreat, comes back with a lot of great ideas, and they last one month, and then they go back to their old behavior. The reason is it feels wrong. It doesn't feel natural. And people want to be authentic in their leadership. None of these things are easy. I work with my clients many months, sometimes years before these behaviors become natural. So none of these things are easy. But it becomes easier when you remember those colored lenses, when you realize that if you allow always just a little bit of skepticism in your beliefs, when you realize that there might be some ways in which your view of the world is distorted, that at least, at least puts you in a space where you're asking the right questions. And there's so many ways for us to gain clarity. I'm not going to go, obviously, in 15 minutes through these. So many different tools and ways in which we try to gain clarity about who we are as leaders, how we, how we occupy the space that we're in, how do we uh, understand our organizations, uh, the soft part of our organizations, you know, what are the different leadership archetypes, what are relationship themes, what's the shadow of leadership? Every light has a shadow. What's our shadow? Do we have clarity on that? What's our attachment style? How do we listen to what's not being said? So all these different tools. Um, and these are really important. As a leader, these are things that are really important to understand. So persist, and you will see a change, and get to know, you, and get to know yourself better. And that's all I want to say to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for that perspective. I resonated with about six million things that you said. But um, a couple of things. I always go to my husband when I'm writing the keynote speeches. And he's here. And usually he says, it's great. Now can you make your conclusion, your introduction? And then I fall apart because I have to rewrite everything. But on the topic of doing the one thing that I think is the craziest thing, um, we, ha we hired this agency to help us kind of grow. Ravi was talking about sales strategy earlier. And the guy said, we're going to do cold emailing in Saudi. I'm like, are you nuts? Who's going to answer my cold email in Saudi? And no cold WhatsApp maybe, but cold email? He's like, let me try it. We got a client. I was like, hey, try it. We got a client. I was like, someone answered me to an English language email in Saudi. I was wrong about everything. And so when ideas feel deeply wrong to me, that is the time where I challenge myself to say yes. Thank you for bringing Thank that you. up. Thank you, Issa. <laughs>